Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This evening we're going to be in 1 Kings 17. And what we saw the last time, the title was Bad Legacies. It was, you know, some chapters are kind of sad. You know, it was just these kings that were not doing the right thing, a whole succession of them. Um, we got, unfortunately, introduced to the evil King Ahab of the Northern Kingdom and his evil wife Jezebel. They just were a couple made for, the, for each other. They were both pretty nasty people. And today we have a little bit of better news. Uh, the title is Miraculous Works. We're going to be introduced to Elijah the prophet, who is a counterbalancing force to the evil royal couple. And I like to look at this. I'm looking at, you know, we, and we can see this in our own country, this, these forces that go back and forth, you know, these forces that try to divide the country or plunge us into decadency. Uh, and there's always these, these, these uh, really undercurrents spiritually that start to work. And here, I really do believe that you know, God brought the prophet Elijah for many reasons, but also he was a, an opposing force to the evil that was in the nation. I love Elijah because, well, he was a great prophet, but I also love his humanness. I love the fact that the Bible records his fears and failures and that he was a person just like you and I. He wasn't a special person. He just was somebody that said, sure, Lord, I'll do it. I'll go. Send me, like Isaiah 6. So jumping in in verse 1, First one says, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead say to Ahab, who was the king, As the Lord God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years except at my word. So this is the first time in the Bible we're really introduced to the prophet Elijah, and he sends a pronouncement of God's judgment on the king, but also the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, the judgment on the leaders and the subjects because they were both practicing idolatry. So just so you know, the uh, main deity, the main false god, his name was Baal, and uh, <laughs> he was the god of the weather. He was the god of the rain. It's kind of funny, I'm talking about it, and I could hear it pounding on the roof right now. <laughs> but, uh, and again, he, was, he didn't exist, but the people thought that if they prayed to this, this made-up deity they thought was real, that he would bless their crops because the rain had to do with the crops and the children of Israel depended on this rain as the whole earth did before major technological irrigation controlled by computers and things of that nature. But Queen Jezebel brought this Baal worship heavily into Israel. Yes, it was there to some extent, but it's something different if your queen or your president is giving their consent to it. So the people start to now follow it even more. Um, and, and God caused this drought to show the Israelites, you want to rely on Baal? You think he's the storm god? You think your crops are going to grow? I will shut the spigot off, and there won't be any rain that comes down from heaven. And I, I, I don't hear it on, you know, this is just like in cue, I guess. I don't hear it on the roof anymore, but <laughs> a little bit of a dramatic effect tonight. But the cool thing is that, is that God was saying, this guy, he doesn't exist. And if you keep doing this and you keep smiting me, then I'll just shut it off and you won't have any rain. 
And some people think that's mean because in our society, you know, everybody's clamoring for stuff that they didn't earn, that didn't work for. Our society has become very decadent. And then we read the Bible and we're shocked. You know, um, you people probably aren't, but if somebody's listening on the CD or the internet or, um, you know, they might say, wow, is that how God operates? We're going to talk about that because God is a loving God and he's also God of warning. In Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, God promised slash warned the children of Israel that he would not bless their land if they worshiped false gods. He said it right up front. The Lord had this unconditional and conditional promises, and these were conditional upon the children of Israel's actions. If you worship false deities, that's it. I'm not going to bless your land. Now, I have to digress for a moment because I think it's funny with the political climate. If God was running for political office, he probably would get very few votes from either party. And the reason is he's not giving stuff away. You know what I'm saying? I mean, he desires a relationship with us, but Americans, you know, it's so sad. It's, it's such a dry place, and we see it. Um, but God's not just giving stuff away. Uh, you know, we live in a very entitled generation. People want things that they haven't earned. Parental discipline is largely lacking. And I can tell you, I've counseled parents, and I'm going to move between God and parents because we, we should really discipline and we should really parent the way God has or the way he does and learn from him. And I've told parents, don't let your kids manipulate you. And a lot of parents are manipulated by their kids, and they say things like, well, you would do that to me? Okay, I counsel them to say, no, you did it to yourself. Okay, when, when a child gets disciplined, you did it to yourself. If you're a good parent, you exp explain what you expect, and when they fail or they transgress, then you say, okay, I have to do what I, what I promised. You did it to yourself by your actions. And this is just the way it is. God did this to the children of Israel, right? Parents warn through verbal warning. Some parents actually write out contracts. But God warned through the prophets. He, he had it written down. He had copies made. Uh, the, the Levites and the priests were supposed to reiterate this, so there really was no excuse. And technically, the king was a de facto spiritual leader of Israel. And a lot of the kings had failed in that respect. Um, you know, it was, it's just amazing when you look at God's word. I mean, he has a, an admonition to fathers, to, to leaders, to kings, etc. Spiritual leaders all the way down the line. And if it didn't happen, then people were failing. But just to throw out there uh, how Elijah is men mentioned in the Bible, so I'm going to go through this. Elijah is mentioned in a lot of places in the scripture. So I, I kind of made a list. Matthew, in Matthew 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, where Jesus was transfigured. Elijah was on that mount. He was, God brought him back to go there. Uh, two, in Luke 1.17, we're told that John the Baptist came in the spirit of Elijah. You know, Elijah was a pretty no-nonsense person, and John the Baptist was pretty no-nonsense, and they made light work of taking his head off because they didn't like his message. Now, I'll read to you, too, James 5.17 through 18, if we could jump to that, James 5. 17 through 18, even James speaks about Elijah. In the Bible it says that Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was not a god. He was a human being like you and I. And he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. So he's mentioned in James. 
many believe, including me, that in Revelation 11, the two prophets that come back in our future, they come back to Jerusalem, that one of them is Elijah. A lot of speculation on who the other one is, but a lot of people believe at least one of those prophets is Elijah. And then the last point, the fifth point, or the fifth scripture I want to reference is Luke 4. If we could jump to Luke 4. Jesus references Elijah, uh, starting in verse 23 through 26. Jesus is speaking to the religious leaders, and of course there's another dust up, and he says to them, you will surely say this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself. Whatever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in your country. Then Jesus answered, Assuredly, I say to you, no prophet is accepted in his own country, but I tell you truly, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, and there was a great famine throughout the land. But to none of them was Elijah sent except to Zarephath in the region of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And that's ins- that was insulting in the first century in Jesus' day because they still had this, you know, they looked down on the Gentiles. And this is a fact. God took Elijah and he sent him out of Israel to a foreign land and ministered to a widow and probably many other people that were not Jews because the Jews were not obedient. So um, that was a pretty big dust up that Jesus talks about Elijah with the religious leaders, but it's a fact. Sometimes the truth hurts. Uh, Verse 2, going back to 1 Kings 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, so he, he goes and he deals with Ahab the king. No rain. This is what God says, judgment. Verse 2, then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Elijah, get away from here and turn eastward to hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have committed the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, and he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan, actually probably pronounced Cherith. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Very interesting. God says to Elijah, get away from here. Don't stay here. You talk to the king, great. You gave the message, now go. And I find this fascinating because I think that he was trying to get Elijah away from, well, probably number one for safety because Jezebel was going to find out and she wanted to kill all the prophets of God, but God could have spared Elijah. I really think that he was trying to keep him t- from becoming stained by the society. Maybe if he stayed around, hung around in the king's court long enough, maybe the king would try to bribe him. And there is, you know, that's called holiness, to, to not look like the world and look more like Christ. Okay, and we run into this in the world. We all have friends that are not Christians, and just that's great. Hopefully we're a positive influence. We have professional associates. And so one of two things is happening. Influence is always dynamic. It's never static. Either we're in influencing others positively for Christ, or we're being negatively influenced by others to the world. You know? And for this particular reason, he told Elijah, go. Uh, the word herith means separation. How ironic. And how sad that Elijah had to separate himself from his own people to be alone in the wilderness with some birds. <laughs> and, uh, you know, them ministering to him. And, but, you know, I, sometimes I look at the Christian culture and even Christians sometimes think that they're safe because they found a group of Christian friends. But even some precincts or quadrants of the Christian culture is, is bad too. The doctrine's bad, the behavior's bad. And sometimes, you know, 
if we're really doing it right, sometimes we find ourselves lonely, like Elijah was, because we're just trying to separate, separate ourselves unto God. So I want to encourage you with that. If you ever find yourself as a Christian, sometimes just being lonely, you know, because maybe your friends are bad influences, maybe your Christian friends are, good for you, because it's better to be with God than to be with a group of people that pretend to be something, but certainly not in their doctrine and their actions. So verse 4 and 6, the miraculous feeding of Elijah. God tells Elijah pretty much to go out here, probably in the middle of nowhere, and, and you know, Elijah probably thought, well, there's nothing out there. Maybe he didn't. But he probably thought, you know, God will take care of it, and God did. He uses ravens. He uses unclean birds, according to the law, to do the feeding. That's very unusual. A lot of people have a lot of speculation. Why would God use these unclean birds to feed his prophet? And I, I look at this in a few ways. Number one, probably to broaden Elijah's mind on how God does things. God can do whatever he wants. And even as Christians sometimes, I think we get, I, I hate to see, say, see that we get like quartered into these little camps that we say, well, only God can do it this way. And, and it's, it's not true. We have to, God is a big God. Okay, in this chapter, Elijah calls on God to do a resurrection, something that no one's ever done before because he really had that much faith in God. That's how big he was. God never runs into these puzzles or these Rubik's Cubes that he can't get himself out of. He's God, <laughs> and we have to keep that in mind. But So number one, broaden his mind on how God works. Two, probably a picture of grace, and we'll see that more with the widow, that God can get his will done even through unclean vessels, the ravens. Okay, remember in Exodus 18, Moses was being counseled by Jethro. His, his, he probably came to the Lord at some point, but his, his pagan father-in-law gives him really good advice <laughs> about how to, how to deal with the children of Israel and their problems and their quarrels. And it was really good advice, and Moses took it. Okay, the widow of Zarephath. Uh, you know, the Israelites looked at this woman, that area, that's unclean. That's where Jezebel came from. But God's going to show Elijah something about how he can work with situations that are, would normally be looked at as impossible. So God, again, God looks at this, or God gives Elijah bits of information, and Elijah has no, no choice but to walk with him step by step. You know, I'm, you know, he didn't give Elijah the five-year plan. He didn't give him the ten-year plan. He gave him the one-day-at-a-time plan. Me personally, I like to plan, so I would love if God gave me the five-year plan, uh, but he's not going to do that because he knows my heart. He knows that I'll just you know, be regimented and I'll be oblivious and, and um, I'm, I'm foolish sometimes that way, and thankfully God gives me a daily thing. But you know what's interesting is God, and I've talked about this, it keeps coming up in uh, the Sunday messages and the Wednesday messages, unfolding revelation. Go in a direction. Go where God calls you to go. Do according to his word. But I don't know exactly. It's not fine-tuned. Don't worry about it. When you get there, he'll fine-tune it for you. And that's really God, I think, a lot of times allows us to not know all the details so that we can trust them daily. And, and I think that's a good thing. Uh, eventually, in verse 7, the brook dries up because the drought was severe. So now some of these little tributaries are starting to dry up. You know, There's a, actually a little tributary by my house with a, a concrete a steel bridge over it. And sometimes when we're walking the dogs, I look at it, and I can tell by the level, you know, is it down to the big rocks on the bottom? Wow, we really need rain in July. 
Um, and it's kind of interesting because it, it gives me a measuring stick of what the rainfall is in our area, and it's neat. But eventually this little brook dries out. He's got to move now. He needs water. Um, and, and it's funny because the drought leads to this great famine. And we can look at this spiritually as well. Spiritual famine is caused by spiritual drought. And the, 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 the torrents of living water that Jesus talks about, we need the Holy Spirit to fill us. And when we start to get dry and we don't have that water, that spiritual water, that leads to worse things and that leads to spiritual drought. It's a domino effect. So we can look at this physically, geographically, or geologically, and we can also look at this spiritually. And I also look at the brook drying up as the old wineskins. And let me, let me explain what I mean. You know, <laughs> Jesus taught this great message spiritually about old wineskins. Now, old wineskins at some point were new, but then they got old. And it's really neat because what God did 50 years ago in the United States, some people hold on to that, the old ways. And, and they, they just can't open their mind to something new. And then they keep holding, and God's like, I'm not doing that anymore. That was then, this is now. I'm doing something new because I'm God and I can do that. And, and I can see sometimes people get stuck it, like the old brook drying up, you got to move. God's going to bring water somewhere else. Start moving. Start praying. See where God wants you to go. Verse 8. You know, is it possible that, and I don't want to read too much into it, it's possible that Elijah could have got real comfortable. Peaceful, running water, <laughs> birds every day bring your, your meal, your three-course meal, three times a day, you know what I'm saying? Well, I don't know. It's like room service. You don't have to go out to pick anything or hunt anything. And, and God wasn't going to let him get stuck there. He, he said, he's basically says, like, now I've got to move you somewhere else. We've got to go. We've got things to do. Come on, move westward. So it's fun stuff to me. I love this. I love Elijah. And I love his relationship with God. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise, go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded a widow there to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. She's a total stranger. And as if she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And she said, As the Lord your God lives, I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I am gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Wow, she's definitely pretty to the point, this lady. But <laughs> Zarephath was an area of Phoenicia, and Phoenicia, I'm going to put up a map in a little bit, uh, actually the tech guys are, <laughs> but Phoenicia was an area that Jezebel came from. Very interesting how we see this switch. Right? Jezebel comes to Israel to make a mess, God sends his prophet to her hometown to change things for the positive. Very interesting. Why Zarephath? Let's understand a few things. Number one, today people try to say the word Zarephath as if it's a positive thing. It's not. It's a Gentile area where they're worshiping false gods. So the name in itself is not a positive thing. The woman who is in Zarephath is, is positive. Okay, let's keep that in mind. 
Uh, two, Zarephath means like refinery. So it could have been a place in this pagan area where the metallurgy was done. Um, the smelting was done. Maybe they made swords and shields. So it's very interesting. An industrial little town, a little city that he ends up going to in this Gentile area. So three things I look at. Number one, that God can do mighty works with any person who's willing. God could send his prophet or you or me anywhere on the face of this earth and do a work. Well, well we can't go there. Sure we can. Sure we can, if God has called us to go there. Two, whether it's the Old Testament or New Testament, God often went to the Gentiles, especially when his people rejected him. Hence the ire in Luke 4, when, he, when Jesus talks to the religious leaders about this incident, they're very ticked off at him. This foreign woman actually proves to be more obedient and respectful to God than many of the Israelites at the time. And you know what's really sad today? It's actually a good thing and a positive thing but it's sad when unbelievers show more moral behavior than some Christians that we know. That's a sad thing to watch. And in this instance, this lady is really open to the true God. And she's got pagans everywhere around her, grew up a pagan. Okay? Three, maybe to strike this pagan city on Jezebel's home turf with the truth of Yahweh. Why did God go there? All right, Jezebel comes over here to make a mess. I'm going to send my prophet over there to make things better. I'm going to have my prophet bring light to this Gentile area. And that was one of the things he wanted the children of Israel to do, to bring that light to the Gentiles. And of course, Jesus did that. Now, a few things, and because I read things and I, 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 a flag goes up, and I think, well, somebody might ask me a question about this. I don't completely understand it. I go into my Hebrew or my Greek. So in this instance, it says that he commanded the widow. Okay. But then when, when um, the prophet gets there, it's not like she has this itinerary and knows everything about God. As a matter of fact, a lot of things she says, she doesn't know the truth about God. So the word in Hebrew, God commanded her, it also can mean that he found her or he appointed her. Or in a sense, he's wooing her with his spirit. She's starting to respond to the true God. And then Elijah comes and he closes the deal, so to speak. And I believe by the end of the encounter that this woman becomes a believer in Yahweh. That's my personal opinion based on what I read. So let's understand that. This widow is getting ready to die because she's completely out of food. And she basically says, well, I, I, there's a few sticks I can get together, rub them together, make a, a Boy Scout fire here. I got a little bit of flour, a little bit of oil. I'm going to make one more cake, and me and my son, we're going to die because we, we're starving. There's nothing left. And it's kind of interesting that we, that I kind of look at her, and she reminds me of John 4, the woman at the well. She's a little crusty because of life circumstances. You know, she's, she's having a difficult time because of life. But she's still open. She's still open. Verse 11, and you know, I believe he's testing her. He kind of tells her, he just meets her. I don't know if there was greeting, but I just know that he started telling her to do stuff. Give me some water. <laughs> Make a cake for me. You know what I'm saying? But in verse 11, I believe that he was testing her and she could have said no. Some people today are so. Some people today have so much abundance and are, and are so possessive and stingy with their possessions. And then you find somebody who's poor, others who have basically nothing, but the little that they have are willing to share. Isn't that ironic? It's a strange thing. Um, and, I, and also, I believe that she's also a picture of brokenness. You know what's really sad in this country is that before the government got in the in the business of um, charity you know that a long time ago in our country that the church churches houses of worship were really the main players in doling out food and help and shelter and stuff and something changed over the years 
the government got heavily into that business, and of course there's a lot of inefficiencies and corruption, and it's very sad. And you, you always see that we have this war on poverty for how many decades, and there's still poor people. How does that happen with all the billions and trillions of dollars that gets moved around? And I think what's, what, what's possibly said is that, just going back, is it possible that in our country that uh, people of faith dropped the ball at some point where the government really had to step in? Just conjecture, I don't know for sure. But I find it interesting in verse 12 that the widow said, as the Lord your God lives. Okay, so she's having this discussion with the prophet and she's referencing his God. Notice she doesn't mention, well, my God's better than your God. Well, did you hear about Baal? I'm sure Baal will come through any minute. Nothing about Baal. She starts now referencing his God. And I believe that she's in a place where she realized her gods have done nothing for her. And she's ready to turn to the Lord. And I can tell you that when I talk to missionaries and read books written by missionaries and, and hear stories, they go to these, these lands that are so pagan. They're so backwards. And some of the people, they go to villages, they're ready for Christianity because their gods have only tormented them. They've only left them high and dry. They've only used them. And of course, it's either not really a god or it's demonic. So of course, the, the demons are going to toy with people. And these people are ready. They're open to receive Jesus. In, in India and in some of these places, uh, it's amazing. These ministries, they go in and like the whole village is, they all want to become Christians. Isn't that amazing? But see, this is what the world does to people. This is what Satan and his demonic hordes do. They leave people destitute. I think in America, it's a different story where, you know, there's so many hard hearts, not because they're broken, but because they have so much. They're so distracted. And it's, it, I think sometimes it's harder in this country because people have so much. Okay, <clears throat> if we could put up the map and I can show you um, the prophet Elijah's travels. And this is, this is the basic, the, the artist who made the map, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like this, but you have Elijah coming from here. He's a Tishbite. He's from the Gilead area. This is actually the, um, the Sea of Galilee. It was called in the Old Testament the Sea of Chenereth. It had many names over the years, but it's been the same sea. It hasn't moved, okay? Uh, so <laughs> Elijah's from this area, and the capital of the northern kingdom is over here, westward, okay? And this is where the, the royal palace and stuff would be. So in verse 1, you know, he goes over here. He announces what the issue is. There's going to be judgment. Then he goes, remember God tells him, now get out of here and go eastward. So he goes eastward here, and he finds some brook that ends up by uh, dumping into the Jordan, hangs out there for a while with the ravens and the food, and then what happens is God sends him over here. Now this is a good distance. Um, it could be 80 miles, depending on where over here. Was it over here? We don't know. So he ends up over in Zarephath, which is uh, modern-day Lebanon. So in today's understanding, this is still the Mediterranean Sea. It hasn't moved. This is Lebanon, and this is Israel, right? And you got Syria. It's still Syria. Syria is one of the things that really hasn't changed. But I love the maps because, you know, people say, oh, the Bible isn't real. There is so much proof, and when archaeological archaeologists pretty much look at how many stadia or how many Sabbaths journey. They read the Bible and they move from city to city and they start digging and they find stuff because the Bible is real and God's word is true. 
So it's pretty cool. So he goes all the way over here, not sure the route that he took, and he ends up in Zarephath, which is between Tyre and Sidon, which were two more, more famous cities, and Jezebel came from this area over here. And then we see the Mount Carmel thing, but we'll cover that in the next chapter. So Elijah's a busy guy, but pretty much he does what God tells him to do. He's obedient. Verse 13. And Elijah said to her, the, the widow, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and, her, she and he and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. <clears throat> so this woman, she trusts, right? I mean, seriously, there wasn't much left anyway, so she might as well, you know, was it going to buy her another few hours? She, ser- she shares it, but she's obedient. And she's generous. Jesus in Luke 21, 1 through 4, remember he spoke about the widow with two mites. You know, he looked and he's watching people give money in the treasury and, he's, and his little widow with these ding, ding, these two mites. And he goes to the disciples, look, look, she's given more than all these people. What? Yeah, but she's given out of her poverty. And, and back in the day, they would announce it. And they do it today, too, sadly. Sometimes it's in churches. Big announcement of how much you're giving. And Jesus says she gave out of her poverty. She gave the most. Verse 13, I love God's ways. They're always so fair. Verse 13, he says, make me a cake pretty much first, you know, so put the little bit of flour together, that little teaspoon of oil and, and, you know, the water and make it. And then I want the first piece. And again, I believe he was testing her. Make me a cake first. So basically she gives to Elijah who represented God. And in doing that, she gave to God first. Okay. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things, what? Wealth, health, no, no, no. According to Matthew 6, it was life's necessities. They'll be added to you. Do we as Christians put God first? Do we? Do we trust Him? Now, she could have said no, and that could have been her last meal. Don't know. But what we do know is that she was obedient. Her obedience and trust and faith saved her. So, you know, it, it's really hard for us to, to look at something like this and really see the impact. I suppose if you maybe went through Central America or, uh, you know, any of these places, you might say, wow, I've seen real poverty, real, real poverty. I mean, like where, where we are, we have supermarkets, credit cards, abundance. And, and it's funny because whenever they forecast three inches of snow where I live, you can't get a line in the stop and shop. I mean, people are panicking. They're taking all the water off the shelves and <laughs> you're laughing because it's forget about it. You know, it's what do they think is going to happen? But <laughs> we just have so much of an abundance and I don't know. It's these people live day by day. Just saying. And and again, I've said this before. Um, sometimes even some Christians, because of abundance, don't necessarily walk day by day because they have the luxury of not having to. And I say that a little bit facetiously. In other words, they have so much abundance that, you know, well, I'll pray whenever, when I get around to it. I'll read the Bible when I get around to it because they have the luxury of, you know, having themselves taken care of. 
Uh, and that's, I think, the, the difficulty in this country. In the end, God showed this woman that she was not only useful to bless him by blessing Elijah, and Matthew 10 comes into play, uh, giving a cold cup of water in the, in the Lord's name and, and these things, and also Matthew 25. You know, when did we see you in prison, Lord? When did we clothe you when you were naked? We, we don't remember this. And he says, well, if you've done this to least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. So those scriptures come into play. But he showed her that he loved her, and he showed her that although in the world, in the world's economy, she was nothing, not even a blip on the radar, that she was precious to God, and thus he spared her life. Verse 17. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring to have you come to me to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? Strong words. You know, she's she's moving in the right direction. And you know, you, you see this with discipleship too. You know, people seem to go, they, they're doing really well, and then they, there's a setback. And sometimes a tragedy causes panic. And a panic causes a setback spiritually. And if we were her and it was our only child, we might react negatively too. We're human beings. Sometimes we revert to the flesh. Okay? But this, you know, she's, she's panicking here. Now, it doesn't remember the Bible records statements. Some of those statements are true and some of those statements are false. Sometimes people take the, the Bible out of context, and I've seen this for those that don't want to believe in the, in the deity of Christ. The rich young ruler in Jesus says, Well, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Actually, Islam has a campaign, and I've seen this, where they take that scripture and they say, See, Jesus never claimed to be God. Right? Jesus was, well, that's a whole other topic for. For the different scripture, I shouldn't even brought it up. But the point is that you can't take things that people say to always be theologically accurate. What she said was not accurate. He wasn't there for that reason. Okay, uh, she thought that that because of her sin, now Elijah was going to judge her and her son and pronounce death that very day. Remember in, in John chapter nine, the blind man. Jesus is getting ready to do a healing. What do the disciples do? Can we help you out, Jesus? How can we facilitate this? No, they're having a discussion. The guy's there blind. He's got problems. Jesus wants to heal him. And they're saying, so Jesus, who sinned? This man or his parents? You know, like they're having this ridiculous discussion and the guy needs help, okay? But it was a common thought back then to feel if something happened to you that it was your fault or that it was because of some type of sin. And it's funny, there's roots here in the prosperity gospel. Because they say that if you're really on fire and you're walking with the Lord and you have faith, all good things are going to happen to you. Jesus kills that idea. He kills that ridiculous theory. It's, it's fallacious. Okay? And he shows her this. Um, some feel guilty at everything. Others have no conscience at all. So there you go. There's a cross-section of society. But it's amazing how many people, in, even in this country, are ignorant to the truth of what God says. The truth of Jesus. Why? I say for two reasons. Number one, a lack of those that should answer the call to educate people about God. And two, a lack of truth in those that have answered the call, but have answered the call for the wrong reasons. I grew up in a religion that didn't bring me to God to push me away from God because I felt horrible. And I felt there was no way I could be redeemed. 
Yes, there was Jesus, but the church told me all these different things I had to do and maintain, and if I didn't, same thing with Paul to the Galatians that we're covering on Sunday. And I walked away. I did. And and, and somewhere inside of me, I, I wanted to be close to God, but those that answered the call told me the wrong things. And thankfully, he, he found me and he sent people to me that had true things to say. And of course, I became a Christian after that. Verse 19. And he said to her, give me your son. This is powerful. So he took him. I get the impression that this is her adult son. And she's, she's, she's got him tight. His, his breath leaves him, and this is so emotional. She's holding him. This is all this woman has. And he has to ask her, let me have the boy. Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. Elijah, for some reason, was staying with her. God, remember, goes from the brook, goes to the widow. God doesn't tell him anything, not right away. So he stays there. Now, to make it look proper and for it to be proper, what happens is, and we talked about the flat roofs in this area, and you could actually make a whole new room out of the roof. So he takes the boy up the roof where he's staying, and he carries him. This is a man, not just a man of God, but he's a man of compassion. He lays the boy on his own bed. He cries out to the Lord and says, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? God, I don't understand. Is it okay when we serve the Lord to not understand at times? You betcha. Elijah didn't know. What's going on, Lord? Was this part of the plan? You know, are you going to take his life? Verse 21, And he stretched himself out on the child three times and cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord, my God, I pray, let this child's soul come back to him. This was unheard of, but he had that much faith in God. Then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah and the soul of the child came back to him and he revived. And Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son lives. Then the woman said to Elijah, Now by this I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is the truth. I don't know why, but I'm, I'm really getting emotional over this. Because I'm, I'm putting myself in, in her shoes and his shoes. And, and it's, just, it's just now I can't see because i got tears in my eyes. I'm blind right now. All right. Elijah, by the power of God, resurrects the widow's son few points to ponder here number one verse 21 elijah stretches himself on the boy three times this is not a formula well if i just do this and you see this now christianity becomes numerology three was a, a, a common number seven was a common number doesn't mean if you do things three times and seven times it's always going to come true maybe he did it three times for the father son the holy spirit maybe he did it three times because god was testing his faith to see if he would stop at one i don't know the reason but we can't make a whole theology out of the fact that he stretched himself out on the boy three times the second thing we see is in verse 24 we can deduce that the widow becomes a believer in the true and living god and rejects the god of her people the gods of her people could she have been an evangelist in zarephath could there be to this day a, a community of, of strong believers based on her testimony? I don't know. It's fun stuff to think about, though. And this is this, this, this 
exponential progression mathematically that one person can have on an area. I don't know. You know, I only know what I read in the Bible. The, the rest is just speculation on my part. But it's fun to play with three. Imagine the faith of Elijah to be able to ask something like this from God. For all intents and purposes, the boy's dead. And I've seen so much death in my life, in my professional life, that you know immediately when the Spirit has left the person. You can look at them, you can observe them, and you know. And I tell you what, I don't think I've ever been wrong because it's, it's, it's obvious. When the Spirit leaves the body, the body is just a shell. There's nothing left in it. Elijah knew he was dead. But he asked, Lord, please, please. And God answered his prayer. Do we think, do we have the faith that Elijah had? The problems that we may have, do we believe in a God who's so big and bigger than our problems? If a God could do something like this, what can he do for us? What, how could we be in despair? How could we be despondent? This is the same God that we can call upon. He hasn't changed. He hasn't gotten a makeover. He's still the same God. He, he wants us to believe in him. Fourth thing. Now, the widow understood two things. The first thing that we saw with the cakes and the, and the flour and all that, that God provides earthly things, food. Then, through the second example, the, the widow understood that God provides spiritual things, life. This woman got a, an education in theology without sitting in a classroom. Amen? And here's another thing. Unlike the pagan false gods that divided, I'm, I'm the storm god, I'm Zeus, I'm god of everything, I'm Baal, look at my lightning rod. I mean, this is all the stuff that you saw, and we still see it today in old pictures and, and sculptors and stuff like that. God said, I'm the only God, and guess what? I'm the God of everything. The skies, the storm, the water, the sea, the land, the crops, you name it. Life and death, that's me. And she got to meet this God, and she got to worship this God. Five, the widow learned that obedience begets blessings. You know what I, I breaks my heart in discipleship, what I've seen over the years? Disobedience. You tell somebody you're discipling something for their own good, and you tell them, that it's for their own good, and you give them examples, and they rebel, and they're disobedient. And you know how many people I've seen from people that I respect, men and women, people in this church, those that should have been obedient, but got haughty, got prideful, got lifted up, and they went their way, and things happened. And it's sad. I'm not an I told you so type of guy. I just want to see the, the best for everyone. But this woman... Just think about this. American culture. A stranger comes up to you and orders you around. Are you going to do it? <laughs> I'm a New Jerseyan. This is 2016. Somebody call the police. This guy's harassing me. This woman did everything that she was told. Obedience begets blessings. Amen? So, in summation, you look at a, a guy like this and mistakenly and erroneously, some have the tendency to say, oh, Elijah, and put him up on a pedestal. Well, wait till we look at the next chapter after this, after his defeat of the three, four hundred prophets of Baal. I don't know the number, but we'll find it. And Jezebel says, I'm going to kill him. And he runs, and he's scared. He books. This is Elijah. 
but it's beautiful that it's in there. Sometimes the only difference between one of the, any of the great men and women of the Bible and us average people is the fact that they were willing. Yes, God. I, and listen, when you say, you raise your hand, you say, whatever you want, boy, that's open-ended. And a lot of people don't do it for that very reason. You know, raise your hand. You want to raise your hand? Do you want to, you want to be willing? That's a good thing. They were obedient. God says, do something. And we look at it and go, makes no... How many times did the disciples argue with Jesus? Do this. But Lord, just do it. Be obedient. This is God the Son. He's only got your best interests in, at heart. Obedience and also faith. Faith and trust in that God that we serve, that created us, that won us back, that redeemed us by the blood of Christ. Isaiah 6, he's, he's another one. God's telling the plan. God's saying how bad things are in the nation. And Isaiah goes, and God says, who, who should we send? Isaiah goes, send me. <laughs> he interrupts the heavenly conversation and raises his hand. And then he asks, what do I have to do? And the plan wasn't great, but he got to serve the living God. So I just want to encourage you on this cold and rainy night. It's a little bit quieter now. I just want to encourage you. You look at Elijah. And my question to you is, would you be the next Elijah or Elijah? It's up to you. Are you willing? Are you really willing to open your heart and say, Lord, send me whatever you have for me. I'll do it because you're God. Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfield. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays, we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you.